Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Welcome to another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. With me today is another very special guest. Scott Leeds is a writer who lives in the Pacific Northwest. Schrader's Cord is his first novel coming out September 5th. Scott, how are you? Uh, very good. Delighted to be here. And um, I think I just realized now in this moment uh, that my book comes out the same day as Stephen King's new book, Holly, <laughs> which is... Wow. You know, new King book day is like uh, like a bank holiday for me. And so I just realized like the day my book comes out, I'm not going to be spending any time thinking about my book. I'm only going to be sitting down and reading King's new book. That's hilarious. Um, I, I mean, Tor Nightfire must have like incredible faith in you. I just, or you no know, faith at all. <laughs> They're just like, you know what? It's going to get buried by King. So we don't have to worry about it. It's like releasing a, you know, a movie up against a, a Marvel movie. It's like no one's going to notice if it tanks. <laughs> I yeah. feel like um I I was recently seeing some stuff from shortwave books where they were talking about the release schedule for like October. Yeah. And it's like it, how do you get a book in there? Like it's it it feels like impossible because there's so much you know like truly stuff. Truly. That is, you know, but I think that books have an edge in October. Mm. I, it might be just something about the medium, but I always feel bad for like horror novels that are like, or excuse me, horror movies that are like releasing on October 25th. You're like, so you're giving them six days to, 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 cause like once November 1st happens, most of the country, you know, people like us, Halloween lasts all year. So we're, we're, right. we're good to go. But most people like that, the November 1st hits, like they're on to Thanksgiving and Christmas. They're like the ghosts, ghosts and witches and goblins are out of their mind. And I'm like, uh, what like if you have a horror movie put it out in september like give it right. two months to 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 really kind of gain an audience but yeah it's um yeah those like like especially those ones that come out on october 31st where you're just like oh man like a book coming out on october 31st is totally fine right like that works yeah but uh yeah those movies those poor movies yeah now um it, it's it's funny to think about just the weird business of releasing books and like you know when are you going to you know, kind of put this out, like, who's your audience? When's it going to get picked up? Um, right. And it, it feels like, I know that there's a logic behind it, a certain logic behind it, but it still baffles me. Like, um, you know, Nightfire, for example, is releasing like four books or something like that in October. Yeah. Um, it's it's bonkers. And then there's nothing until February. And I'm kind of like, what am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you can you can save Schrader's Court if you want to, because it technically is also like a holiday book. It takes place at Christmas oh, time. That is very true. I actually wrote yeah. in my notes to reread this book in <laughs> the Christmas season because honestly, I was kind of hoping for that. Yeah. I uh yeah, like I'm I'm an insane Charles Dickens fan. I, I I've read everything, but my favorite still to this day is a Christmas Carol. I read it. That's the first one I read. I read it every year on Christmas yeah. Eve. I've done it for the past twenty six, twenty seven years. And uh, man, the, uh, a Christmas ghost story. There's just something so special about it. it. It's perfect. Um, we did an episode, you know, over a year, almost a year and a half ago or whatever, um, that, that was specifically talking about that Christmas ghost story. And, you know, like, why is it so relevant? 
Right. Uh, I read it with my wife. Uh, I, I do like a live reading of it nice. every year, every Christmas Eve. I oh, yeah. love the story. And I, you're right. I mean, there is something about a Christmas ghost story that just like, just works. And you know who does a really good job with that is uh, I think it's Valancourt. Like they do, Ooh. yeah, these like, these like holiday Victorian kind of uh, like, or Christmas ghost stories from around the world. Like every year they put out like a new volume of it. And it's, I look forward to it every year. Like if they ever stopped doing it, I would be so sad. <laughs> But yeah, those those and they, there was also a string of like kind of mini like novelettes. Um, like honestly, they're basically short stories. Uh, there's just tiny little books, um, and all the covers were done by the artist, the graphic designer Seth. Um, and uh, one of them was a Dickens one. Um, another one was a uh, oh god, it's it's it's. I think there was a a Mary Shelley one too. But there was just they did like fifteen of them, and they're fantastic. I don't know if they sell them anymore, but if you can find them they're you can read them you know while you're waiting at the dentist like they're so quick but yeah. they're just delightful that's awesome i thank you for the recommendation i'm sure definitely <laughs> gonna have to add it i i don't again i don't know what it is it's like um you know spooky season is always going to be you know like where my heart lives i just absolutely sure. love i love the the autumnal colors you know i love absolutely. the like there's just a whole vibe, but but next to that is christmas for me and the christmas mm-hmm. season like i i can go like week before Thanksgiving to Christmas and just live that my entire life and not, you know, not be Dude, upset I'm about it. Totally with you. It's, it's really funny too. Cause people always go like, Oh, you, I mean, I've been into horror my entire life. I assume you have as well. And people are just like, you must really love Halloween. I do love Halloween, but I love kind of the, the, I love the decorations. I love the movies. I'm not necessarily a dress up in a costume kind of person. I don't judge those that do. But for me, it's just like, I'm kind of, I, I live there in my head all the time. And so like, I'm, you know, it's, it's like, I let sort of, you know, the quote unquote normies, they can have Halloween to dress up and have fun. (laughs) But I remember I, uh, I lived in New York for like eight years and naturally, I mean, you know, costume parties are a big thing there. And I was like, I got to figure something out because I don't want to be the jerk that doesn't wear a costume. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's like the guy that wears, you know, shorts and like sub zero degree weather. And you're like, oh, you're so cool, dude. (laughs) <laughs> so brave. Um, so I don't want to be that guy. So I, I found a um I got I got myself a Mighty Ducks jersey and I'm like, this works perfectly because I go. can be Charlie Conway, but also I could just be a hockey fan walking down the street. Very easy. Because <laughs> there's nothing worse to me personally. Again, I judge nobody except my own self. But when I'm at like the bodega after like a long Halloween night, it's two in the morning. And there's that just antiseptic light in there that's like bzz, 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 like buzzing, and you're just trying to get a bottle of water. And there's some poor schmo there dressed as Fred Flintstone, and he's just <laughs> hungover and still is still drunk. And like the guy behind the counter just isn't having any of it. And you're just like, this is this is the sad part. Like, this is the end of the concert <laughs> where you're like, oh man, yeah. So yeah. is you you reference the Mighty Ducks and the the Mighty Ducks costume? Is yeah. is that the origin of the Mighty Ducks in Schrader's Chord? It must be those movies. um, You know, I grew up, I still am an enormous hockey fan. Um, I loved those Ducks movies, loved Slapshot, anything that has to do with hockey, like those goon movies I loved. Um, (laughs) Yeah, anything I, anytime I can slip that in. And also, uh, I was a huge, because we didn't really have an NHL team until now we have the crack in here, but growing Mm up, so our NHL team of choice was my dad's choice, which was the Minnesota North Stars. And um, since the, the Mighty Ducks took place in Minnesota, it was just, it, there's also something very comforting about 
those movies where it's just everything's kind of cold everybody's bundled up nothing truly that bad happens like when they're like man bombay was a hawk and you're like we're adults this is not a problem (laughs) hockey is an interesting choice of sport uh have you always been into hockey or is that you know yeah i uh ever since i was a kid uh, i i remember you know i had family in los angeles we'd go there and visit and we'd watch like la kings games and see gretzky play which was really exciting um i think just being from the north uh and we're so close to canada like it just kind of spills over like growing up we got the cbc we don't get it anymore but we did and so they would air like leafs games and habs games and sure all like all that stuff and um but yeah hockey and 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 basketball. I, when we had the Sonics, like hopefully we'll be getting the Sonics back in the next couple of years. But um, yeah, like Sonic Fever was everything. Well, um, I I tend to be a little bit more baseball. Um, Love baseball I, too. Yeah, I I think that's uh, that's again just you know kind of an upbringing thing. Um, I sure. grew up uh, around uh, two two towns. Um, I grew up in in California in the Bay Area. So sure like went to Oakland games every summer. Sure. Um, and then uh, Denver um, lived, lived South of Denver. So my grandfather would take me to uh, Colorado Rockies games. Sure. This, this was back in the nineties when they were still like, you know, they were like a big team. And a big yeah. Deal. yeah. Yeah. So were the Mariners back then too. You know, we had right. like Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr. Like it was, you know, but I heard like Oakland, um, I might be wrong about this, but I heard Oakland's going to, lo- they're going to lose the A's. Like, I don't know where the A's are going. Yeah. I think they're going to Las Vegas. They've been talking about going to is Vegas. Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, aren't the Raiders going to Las Vegas yeah, too? The, the Raiders are in Las Vegas now. Yeah. They're already there. I, I believe they are. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I don't follow up on football very much. Football is the one sport. My, my dad really liked it, but I just couldn't, I couldn't, it was just so slow. Like I oh. love basketball, hockey, love soccer. I love tennis. Like that was my main thing. Um, mm. I'm a, I'm a tennis fanatic, so it's uh, I'm terrible at playing it. I've tried my entire life. I will continue <laughs> to try, but I'm ju- I'm just I don't have the knees for it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but my my poor my poor dad would always be like, "You want to go?" Like we'd go to uh, Seattle and be like, "You want to see a Seahawks game?" Or even go to like UW and see a Huskies game. And I was just like, "No, not not even a little bit." Like that sounds terrible <laughs> to me. You sit there for six hours? <laughs> no. <laughs> So um, I, we, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. I sure. can already tell. That's just kind of going to be the. Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a verbose cat, man. Like I'm all about going. it. I love it. <laughs> um, but I do want to, you know, kind of talk a little bit about Schrader's Cord. Um, yeah. so share with us and and our listeners, um, what is Schrader's Cord about? So Schrader's Court is about uh, an A&R man who works for uh, a big record label in New York, uh, Columbia specifically, and um, he gets the news that his father has died. And his father and him have had kind of a cantankerous relationship uh, really their entire lives, but the past five years they haven't really spoken at all. And uh, his two sisters kind of contact him and say, you know, like, we need to we need to get this thing figured out. And so Charlie, the A&R guy, he goes back home to Seattle and he discovers that his dad not only left him the keys to this record store, which Charlie kind of feels is like a family albatross. Like he doesn't want to have anything to do with the record store. Um, and as well as this box of these kind of four antique records um, that as the legend goes, when played simultaneously open up a, uh, uh, they play a singular chord that opens up a gate to the land of the dead, a chord created by this kind of insane uh, early 20th century composer named Yvonne Schrader. Um, 
And so, of course, it's a horror novel. So they have to do the idiot thing and play the records. <laughs> right. Because uh, if they didn't, then the book would be pretty short and pretty boring. Um, and uh, and then, of course, all hell breaks loose. And and because it, it opens up a gate to the land of the dead, Charlie is uh, and his sisters or really his sister. Um, the other sister leaves town. Yep. But they're uh, they're reunited with the resurrected father. And uh, he kind of knows the power of the records and what they can do. And uh, so they got to work to get things all shut up tight, locked up. There is so much to unpack in this book. And and <laughs> one of the things that I love was that, I, you know, I went in for like, let's let's listen to some haunted records. That sounds amazing. Right. Um, what took me kind of off guard was just how emotionally resonant I felt the book was and how many truly excellent character moments there are. It is so tender for a, a horror novel and there's some great horror in here too there's some nice stuff time. that i was like this is a this feels like sam raimi at his best here. oh that's awesome you know? um but i also felt like you know you don't skip out on any of the character interactions and it, it, there are such tender moments which i think speak to what i love about this book so much thank you man so, I mean, I, I do want to hear, you know, what was some of the inspiration for these haunted records? Um, because I felt like I saw, you know, the influence of, of you know, like Sam Raimi or like a, a Clive Barker on sure. this stuff. You know, like there's a lot of resonance there. But um, I kind of wanted to hear a little bit about like, you know, the origin story of a haunted record collection. Sure. Uh, well, it... it th- <sighs> I've been trying to think about this, and I think I can zero in on where the idea really came from. Um, back when I was about 19, 20, I was living up in Bellingham, Washington, and uh, my buddy Seth and I were working at Toys R Us, and we worked in like the R Zone and like the Jeffrey's box office area, like the movies and video games stuff. And so we were back on a break in like the the, the security area, and we had all these like display boom boxes that was like a Mickey Mouse boom box, a Dora the Explorer boom box, a SpongeBob boom box. And we had um, the album by the Flaming Lips called Zyrica, which is four discs. You played it all four at the same time. It's supposed to kind of collectively create a single sound. And so we took out the Mickey, bo- the, the Mickey stereo and the SpongeBob stereo and the Dora stereo. We played them all. And it was a really fun experience. And I always, it was kind of a formative experience, really fun time. Our manager yelled at us because my walkie was on. And so the whole staff <laughs> at the store heard what we were doing. And... Um, I just, that always kind of stuck in my head as a really good memory. And then I thought, well, what if you played all four of those records and something bad happened? I mean, it, it is a ceremonial thing to do, to play those Flaming Lips records that way. And, you know, ceremony kind of lends itself to horror. Um, I mean, you know, nobody knows that better than Clive Barker. And that's kind of what I thought. Like, I mean, that opening little bit that's all in italics is really just my homage to Hellraiser. It's the beginning of like, you know, what is your pleasure? <laughs> I was going to say it, it reads like, like I can, yeah. I, I can taste the film grain, you know, yeah. in that opening sequence. It's <laughs> so great. Oh, that's awesome, man. That That is, you cannot give me a bigger compliment than that. That is so cool. I That's, and that's exactly what I was going for. And, and, you know, thought, well, what if the records were sort of like Le Marchand's box, you know, the Lament configuration, like what if they could open up this gate? Um, and what's funny is, is, Big of a King fan as I am, and I'm an enormous King fan, like I have all of them right there in chronological <laughs> order, all bro darted in plastic, in mylar rather. I love it. Um, yeah. And, uh, but I think this book really taught me how big of an influence Clive Barker is, which of course I have all of his books right here, which you can't see. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought like, oh man, yeah, I, I thought I was kind of going in doing like a king homage, which there definitely is. There's a dead woman in a bathtub. I mean, oh that's yeah, absolutely. Classic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there there turned out to be much more. Even my editor was like, "There's a lot more Barker in here than I thought there would be," and I was like, "Me too." It surprised me yeah. as well. Uh, and not to you know get too far ahead of my own skis, but the next book is very Clive Barker influenced. Ooh, I love it. I'm yeah. really. We're gonna have to talk about that because I'm I'm really into you know hearing what's on the horizon for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I I I love the idea of you know like just cursed knowledge or like a cursed object story i'm always going to be into that yeah what i love too is the way that you incorporate a lot of music um into you know the book itself because it's not just about you know a cursed record there's a lot in here about um our connection to music and our connection Mm -hmm. to art and the way that i think music specifically um can kind of like completely shape the tone or the um the experience of of you know even just small actions in our lives um so there's a there's a scene in particular i'm thinking about when um anna is is uh like discovering her taste for music for the first time and yeah. uh, she's listening to like a, a cover band a cover september girls and she falls in love with not just the song, but she kind of falls in love with music to begin with. Right. Um, and I want to hear from you, you know, what was that experience for you? What was the, what was the, the musical first kiss that, you know, inspired your love for sound? You know, um, it's hard to trace back my, my mom's family, uh, has been since world war ii and still is in radio terrestrial radio um and uh, in fact uh, one of the stations is mentioned in the book kojm out of oh, uh, wow. Montana. um and uh yeah my uncle still runs that but we grew up because my mom when she was a teenager she worked at the record store or at the the uh, the radio station so in our basement we just had thousands of records and promos and we had this gigantic hi-fi the size of a buick that was mahogany and had an eight track player a cassette player a, a turntable on there and so i suppose that's probably like the, the 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 spark was just living amongst music and my dad was a huge music fan too and and um and then just little things along the way. It's always when you find your own thing. Because everything in the basement, all those records, those were my parents' records. You know, those are my parents. I still love that music um, yeah. as much as I love music from the 30s. I'm a huge, like, 30s big band fan. Oh, my um, But it's that's not my world. That's not, that's not my music. That's found music. And when you find these things, like, there's one moment um, I remember my dad came back from a business thing in Wenatchee, and he brought me Batman 89 on tape i think oh, it wow. was in 1990 <laughs> when he came back with it and i was like oh my god we have batman we don't we, he's like yes because you've rented it ten thousand times <laughs> and um so now you just have it you can wear this one out and we don't have to pay for it and uh my friend jeff came over and i was six five and we put the tape in and just that opening montage of going through like the big stone bat logo with danny elfman's music playing <laughs> when it ended i looked at my friend i said do you mind if we rewind and, and listen to that again and he was just like, all right. And so I did. And I did this like over and over and over again to the point where he went and called his mom to come pick him up because he's like, Scott won't let me watch the movie. He keeps just listening to the music. <laughs> and I remember being like, Is, that's not weird. People do that. And he's like, nobody does that. <laughs> uh, so like little moments like that. And then um, 
you know, when Anna discovers September Girls, that's very close to my own discovery of Big Star in a way, or it's it's sort of a, you know, a cousin to my discovery. I discovered it the way a lot of people did was through interviews. Um, I discovered uh, um, The Replacements through an interview with Michael Stipe from R.E.M., and then with an interview with Paul Westerberg from The Replacements, I discovered Alex Chilton and Big Star. And when he said, like, number one record is, like, the best record in the world, closely followed by Radio City, I was like, well, I got to go find these records. And this was 93, 94, so these Mm. records weren't readily available, especially on vinyl. Like, you couldn't find them at all. Mm. And I had to go uh, into, like, the heart of Seattle to some just i don't even remember the record store but it was just this like blown out sweat sock of a record store right and i found this copy of number one record and i put it on i was like this is the greatest thing i've ever heard in my life (laughs) uh so and that i felt like it was mine uh this is very much the same way that you know growing up in the pacific northwest during the sort of seattle sound boom Mm. you know parents hated that and so we just made us like it even more. We, I was predisposed to like it anyway, but the fact that it was like, oh, this is for us. The same way like when Conan O'Brien took over for Letterman right. on the late night show. Yeah. Like my dad was like, I like Letterman, but this Conan guy, I don't really get him. I'm like, yeah, because he's for me. Right. And so I think that's kind of what Anna had when she discovered Big Star, which was all the music that she'd, you know, grown up listening to, like, you know, that she had her mom's music and, you know, that's fine. And at me, you know, at, at school, people would be listening to Top 40 or whatever was big at the time. Mm. But this was something that she found on her own. And any music fan, any art fan knows uh, that when you find that thing for yourself that first time, like I remember what it was for books. For books for me, it was The Halloween Tree by Ray Bradbury at a Scholastic oh, Book Fair. Yeah. I found that and I was like, this guy wrote a book for me. You know, <laughs> that's, I, you know, when you're that age, your your vision doesn't really go past the tip of your own nose. So I was like, this guy wrote a book for me. It was the first time I thought about the person on the other side of the typewriter. Like, oh, I can do this because this guy did it, you know, and like, so if he can write books like this, because this is the stuff that I would want to write, I can do this too. And the Halloween tree was mine, you know, like Fahrenheit 451 was a school book. You know, it's it's up there with like Catch-22 right. and Where the Red Fern Grows. It's like, all right, it's I like it. It's great. But it's when it's taught, it loses some of its luster. Yeah. No one teaches the Halloween tree, at least not when I was a kid. And so finding it was um, a very special thing, very kind of cataclysmic moment. Yeah. Oh, I dig that entirely. Maybe I'm going to have to teach the Halloween trees at some point in time. I don't know. Do you teach? <clears throat> I do. Yeah. So I'm a... a a world lit professor that's um that's fantastic i know it's kind of the the weird thing i i never really intended to be that um i went to school for uh modern languages that was my undergrad and my undergrad was um you know modern languages with an emphasis in spanish and i did a minor in english my intent was really to teach esl that was kind of my my direction um and then i found that i just liked literature far more i've always been into books it's never like i was you know like afraid of a book i was reading shakespeare when i was you know 10 11 years old um because like it was just there it was like present and i was like let's try it and and, you know fan that i really liked that sort of thing so um as i went through my undergrad i read just a lot of a lot of old so you know a lot of medieval literature because that's often what they stick you in in English. Um, and then I did a master's degree in Spanish literature where oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, so I specialized in 
modern um spanish literature that was like from like continental spain you know yeah and then um i did some 20th century latin american literature where i really focused a lot on um like uh, mexicana literature and, sure. and like tejana literature that sort of thing um and then i also had a, a unit that i specialized in that was like medieval spanish literature so i read no way yeah so i read like a lot of like old spanish epics and romances and you know just like anything that i could really get my hands on um that was like considered canon or whatever yeah and so i i transferred into a phd program for comparative literature and cultural studies um with the intent to kind of shift my focus away from the spanish speaking literature into sure. you know just like other stuff that maybe i wasn't so aware of that's actually ironically where i found horror for the first time really um yeah my my first horror book was uh St- it, of course it was stephen king yeah. um it's like every you know the it's a right drug for everybody right? <laughs> yep yeah um it was the shining and um Mine was too yeah i i i love that book i mm-hmm. really just felt like there was something in it that spoke to me um and and i kind of transitioned into exploring more horror um but in the meantime, as I was doing that, you know, I was trying to figure out how am I going to pay for this dumb PhD program? Um, and so they they started me teaching um, world literature classes because they were like, you know, you have the, the comparative literature background, you have the cultural studies background. And I was like, yeah, but I don't know anything about, you know, world literature, quote unquote. And they're like, you have a you have a degree in Spanish literature. You you have the like the building blocks. Like it's it's like a romance language. You can yeah. branch out in other things, and you can be conversational in right. everything. And yeah. and that was that was the journey. Like uh, just weirdly enough, um, they gave me a class. It was World Literature two sixteen fifty, um, and I sat down and I started looking at the curriculum, and I was like, holy shit, I've been reading this stuff my whole life. Like yeah, yeah, you can do <laughs> I'm this. very very well versed in all of <laughs> yeah. This. I I didn't go to college, so I'm just impressed with like, with one degree. Like multiple degrees is insane to me. That's that's gonna blow my mind too. Uh, hearing that you you've never been to college because I yeah. feel like you are so very learned and so very like erudite about the things that that you want to say through this book. Like I felt like your thesis oh, statement that. was really clear in this book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I I. I oh, that's not fair. I did go to college for one quarter. Um, I I went to Eastern Washington University, and uh, which is a fine school, but I uh, I got the flu my first week of classes. Oh, really no. really bad flu. That's like, hard laid to me out for like ten days. And that's the thing. Like I remember on like my third day missing classes, I called one of my professors and I said, "Hey, I'm really really sorry that I missed this class." He's like, "Dude, you're an adult. You're in college now. You don't have to call me." And like, you know, you can take as many classes as you want. It's up to you what your grade's going to be. And I was like, "It's up to me." <laughs> <laughs> and then I didn't go to class for the rest of the quarter, any of my classes. And I woke up one day, and I thought, you know, I should probably take my finals. And I dug out the crusty old <laughs> syllabi from the beginning of the uh, the quarter, and I realized that all my finals were the week before. Oh no! It, uh, but as if it were on a sitcom at that moment, like my uh, like what do you call it? Like counselor or whatever that like called me and said, "You need to come into the office. We need to talk." And I was like, "Okay, <laughs> I kind of know how this conversation is going to go." And I went in there and I sat down and and he's like, "So you're definitely on academic probation. You have to get this GPA up by next quarter, or else you're out." And I was like, 
I'll do you one better. How about I just go now? <laughs> because ah, this just isn't, this isn't for me. And, um, and then I moved to LA and uh, really never looked back. That's, um, that's amazing. Your story is like my recurring nightmares. Um, <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. I've heard that from so many people. It's like, oh yeah, no, I lived it. It's not that bad. It's not that bad for those that want to, that don't care about succeeding in college. For those that do care, it's the worst for me. It was a get out of jail free card. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my two recurring nightmares are like fi- waking up and finding out that I have a final in a class that I've never attended. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's one. Uh, the other is that uh, I'm, I'm called up to, to go teach a subject that I'm very well versed in. Right. And I just lose the entire class. Like I lose the audience. And really? like, yeah, so I'm like struggling to like get them back. I'm like, how do I, how do I reach these kids? That's an interesting variation on that dream. Cause I've heard that from other teachers where they'll get up in front of a class to teach a subject they know nothing about. And that, that's where them, but like your variation mm-hmm. is like you, you're very well versed on this, but you lose the audience. That's, yeah. that's an interesting take on that. Yeah. It's uh it's it. I wake up in a cold sweat. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have any of those dreams. I uh, yeah, my only real recurring nightmare, crazily enough, is just still shark attacks. I ever <laughs> since I was a kid, I've I've been I've been patty certified scuba dad my entire life. I've been around sharks. I love sharks. I'm a member of the Cousteau Society. I got the Cousteau tattoo. And oh, yet wow. sharks, I still have shark attack nightmares all the time. All have the you, time. Have you read Whale Fall yet? By uh No, I, I I I I've I haven't been able to get out of the house, especially today. Like we're covered in smoke here in Washington. Oh gosh! Um, yeah. But uh, so I finally just broke down and I ordered it, and so it, it is going to be here in the next day or two. But like ev- the whole world's like whale fall. It's like yes, I know, I'm missing out. <laughs> just give me a second. Uh, yeah, it's it. I don't know that it'll do anything to help your shark attack fear, but <laughs> it's, it's a very good book. Well, the thing that's terrifying to me that I didn't know really was a a, a fear. Was I remember it's the uh, I saw Nope, the Jordan oh, Peele movie, yeah. and I loved the movie. I thought it was great. Um, but everybody goes to like the Gordy scene. They're like that scene's so terrifying. I'm like, look, it's not not scary. Like that's it's a very visceral. You know, there's no music. But to me, it was the digestion scene. Like yes. when everybody gets sucked up and they're like di- and they're in these like esophageal folds and they don't know what's happening and there's no music. You hear screams all over the place. It that unsettled me to such a point where I almost had to walk out of the movie because I was so yeah. upset. I was like, yes. oh, I can't, I can't. And so like hearing about whale fall, I'm like, all right, Daniel Krause. All right. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll wait in here. It's, I mean, it's, it's worth the journey, uh, but it for sure is very unpleasant at times. I'm sure. Oh yeah. yeah. It's uh, yeah. So um, your, your relationship with music though, coming back to that, um, you know, it, it, it runs, pretty deep you you have a podcast uh you know about music yep yep uh rusty needles rusty needles record club uh my friend seth and i he's really the guy that started it, but we've been podcasting for a long time this is like our sixth podcast about music and we'll probably quit this one and then think of another shtick and do that <laughs> um but yeah i but seth and i both we were in, been in bands together and separate separately forever and um yeah, I mean, I've been a musician since I was about six, I guess, uh, was when, you know, my mom was like, you're going to take piano lessons. 
And I was like, I'd rather play the drum kit. And she was like, piano lessons. <laughs> and then eventually I got the drum kit and uh, went from there. And then, yeah, and then I just, music has always been so present in my life. I've worked at record stores. I worked at Tower Records in Los Angeles um, for about a year before they went belly up. Um, I've worked in a few record stores other than Tower. I just loved that environment. Um, and I thought, you know, there's hasn't really been a horror story set at a record store. Yeah. Might as well do it. You know, this it's... is full of obsessive people and <laughs> horror works really well with obsessive people because they're the ones that do stupid stuff. I agree. And I, I think too, um, w- what really works about these characters is, is like they, they all kind of speak a, a language that I think really, you know, complements each other. Um, and, and again, you know, kind of deepens that, that love um, as a statement about art and about music. You know, I, I think that um, this book for me was not just a statement on art and music, but also the, the way that art and music can shape our relationships, you know, can kind of like deepen um, the way that we connect to each other. And that was actually one of my original questions to you um, that I sent you is, you know, like kind of wrapping our head around, um, how we build, like, what is the importance of building a relationship around art or how does that facilitate those relationships? And then further, you know, what are the benefits of um, a relationship, you know, kind of founded in a mutual love and adoration for art? Um, yeah, I think it, it starts when we're so young, um, especially in our generation, which is really, you know, the, the, the second maybe pop culture generation after the baby boomers, um, where, but, you know, we were the first one that had our pop culture archived, you know, when we grew up, we had Nick at night, so we could see Bewitched, Not Dream of Genie as, as, you know, these sort of, you know, to use the parlance of Galaxy Quest, the historical documents, we could see these things. And to me as a kid, I can't speak for anybody else, but there was no then and now. Like, I could watch an episode of The Monsters and watch an episode of Boy Meets World, and it was the same thing to me. You know, I didn't, I mean, I knew that The Monsters was older, but it just, it was all just TV shows. And uh, same thing with movies. And when you, when you meet someone who likes something that you like, that's, that, that's, that's the hardest part right there. That's the intro. Mm -hmm. Once you, once you meet someone else, it's like, oh, you saw that thing? I saw that thing. I love that thing. Let's go be friends. And it's a, it's a great kind of just, you know, uh, it's a great just push off the diving board. Like you'd then now you're in the pool, like, and then you can kind of work the friendship or the relationship out from there. Um, I think, however, though, for those of us that are pretty pop culture obsessed, it can also, there can also be a danger to that as well. Mm. Um, I remember, you know, as a kid dreaming of, you know, finding like the perfect girlfriend that loved all the cool stuff that I loved. And then that happened and it was great for a couple months. And then you realize that everything that you're talking about, you agree on. And it's just like, you know, isn't that Johnny Greenwood record? Cool. Yeah. Conversation (laughs) over. Like there's no, like, you know, have you seen this? Like, have you seen Mr. Boogity? Yeah. Oh, okay. Like there's just there, you can't share anything with each other. And so I was like, okay, I want someone who is passionate and obsessed about something other than the things that I'm passionate and obsessed about, because then we can teach each other things and we can, there's still that bit of discovery. There's something that you can offer them and they can offer you. Um, I think it's different with romantic relationships than it is with friendships. I think friendships, you can kind of be on that path where it's like, you know, you can be Tweedledee and Tweedledum being like, yes, we both love these things and we're going (laughs) down the road and, you know, and we're all happy. Um, 
but yet those those things those are very formative moments especially when you're young um especially if it's something that you thought only you knew about i just mentioned mr boogity that you know is this disney special from the 80s that we taped on like the the disney sunday night movie on abc and i had it and i watched it so many times i still remember the commercials remember the diet coke commercial in between and um I remember when I met my my friend Seth in high school, who I, was, I mentioned earlier. In one, I think our second conversation, Mister Boogity came up, and I was like, "Nobody else has seen that." You know, there was no Disney Plus. There was no like it on even on VHS was it didn't exist. Yeah, and um, that was like, okay, we're going to be friends forever, and it worked. And it just so happened that it that just went deeper and deeper and deeper. And we've since lived together three times. We we worked together four times, and we you know, but yeah, it can be really really important. Um, if it's the jumping off point and if it's the thing that can kind of keep the conversation rolling, if it's the only thing you have mm. and you don't go any deeper than the, than the love of art, that's where it starts to get sticky. Um, and that's where I think a lot of our sort of youthful, uh, wishes for friendships or relationships kind of falter. Cause we're like, Oh, we want the person that likes all the cool stuff that I like. And that's great. But they're also a person underneath. They also have emotions. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to do with the book. And, and I didn't want to turn it into a bunch of caricatures. Um, right. Because these people do love music and they are obsessive. I'm obsessive. Um, and, but they're also people and they have feelings and they have emotions and these emotions are tied to the things they're obsessed with, but they're also tied to things that have nothing to do with the art at all. Yeah. And uh, it was important to me to kind of show both sides of that. Yeah, I I really resonated with the way that they, you know, talk to each other. And, you know, there's like some gentle ribbing about some of sure. and you know, stuff like that, that I think is, you know, comes authentically in a friendship. Yeah. Um, it, it really caused me to to reflect on my own relationships, um, because I, I know that I speak a lot of the time through art, um, and especially mm -hmm. literature, you know, that's my greatest passion. It's kind of, you know, where I meet people. Um, but I find myself surrounded by, you know, relationships that I think were built on a mutual appreciation of art. You know, my mother taught me um, to love reading, to love books, mm -hmm. to love stories, really. Yeah. And so, you know, even today, I, I continue to, to deepen my relationship with my mother um, through the, the media that we, you know, consume together. So we'll go and see a movie together and then go back for coffee and just sit and talk about that stuff. Right. Um, I met my wife over a, a mutual appreciation of the the CW show Smallville. There you um, go. Yeah, right. Like of all Perfect. the weird things to connect over, um, That's I'm the a best huge way, man. Yeah, I'm a I'm a huge Superman fan. She just likes hot people doing things. In a <laughs> there show, you, go. you know, <laughs> the Venn diagram is very close on that one. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then, you know, my, my connection with Jeremy, the, the co-founder of, uh, I say co-founder, really the founder of, the, of, uh, of Slay House, but co-host of Slay House Presents, yeah. um, you know, it, like our relationship was, you know, kind of built around our mutual love for, for horror. Sure. Um, and I think it's interesting, like, I think our tastes are like 70% the same. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really like that 30% difference, right? That like really adds a whole lot of dimension to yep. the way that we talk, the way that we think, the way that we discuss literature. Um, 
and it, it's it it's like the spice of life so absolutely you know reading this book where where these characters are you you know kind of united in a love for one another and that love is is metabolized by art right mm-hmm. um I, it it was really resonant i really enjoyed you know that dimension of the characterization and and their relationships it was really cool well thanks man that like it, that really does mean the world to me I you write you know when you write a book you write it in a vacuum we have no idea if it's going to resonate or not and there were several times when I was writing this book I'm like who the hell am I writing for this for just myself like <laughs> and my buddy you know and like be, like I but I've heard some really nice feedback and uh, and the, yours included and it's just it really means the world to me because you just don't know you honestly don't mm-hmm. know because it becomes you get into like you know, draft psychosis. Cause the first draft of this thing <laughs> was so long. And then like, I put, you know, cut two characters out of there and, mm. you know, I switched a bunch of things around and, you know, and then you go with your editors and the editors do drafts and then you go into like line edits and copy edits. And after, at a certain point, like, I don't even like, when I look at it, my, my eyes just glaze over the text. I'm like, is this anything? I have no idea. I didn't, it doesn't even, doesn't like even read. I didn't go to go to college. I've never taken a creative writing class. Does this actually read like a real book? I don't know. Um, so it's it's it really means a lot that it's resonating um and i'm happy that people are not only open to the the the, the kind of the over nerdification of music in this book <laughs> but they're 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 accepting it and they're kind of getting it and like i even had someone um uh i know as a friend of mine i sent an arc to and she was just like um she's like i i listened to philip glass for the first time and I was just like, that's, I'm like, and that was me self-deprecating. I love Philip Glass. And I made fun of Philip Glass fans <laughs> in that book, which is me making fun of myself. And I was like, out of the whole thing, you took Philip Glass from that? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, great. That's awesome. <laughs> this is a person that, you know, probably otherwise never would have listened to Philip Glass. And now, you know, and now she's a uh, a member of the sh- the sweeping arpeggio society. It's uh, <laughs> it's really, really cool. It's really, really cool. Yeah. For, for me, it was Martha Reeves. Um, uh, <laughs> man, I, 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 it's weird to have a reaction to a song where it's like, I've heard this my entire life, but this yeah. is the first time I'm hearing it. Um, right. Oh my gosh. What a, uh, what a, what a sensation, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I, th- there is one in there. Uh, I won't spoil it, but it is an awful earworm and I'm very sorry for people. <laughs> at the end where it's like, I'm, you know, I got to do it. It happened to me. So I got to, I got to force it on somebody else. I oh, love man. it. I love it. Um, that wasn't my only question about art though. Sure. Um, you know, another question that I had was because, you know, there's so much passion in this book, I think for music, um, you know, I, I've, I've been listening to the soundtrack to Schrader's chord for the last nice. couple of weeks, you know, just like really getting a sense for, the just how dynamic a range of musical tastes you represent in that yeah it's yeah it's not a cohesive playlist by any stretch of imagination very eclectic yeah Yeah. it's all over the place yeah you go from panda bear to neil diamond like it's all over the place but i think that's what i love about it so much is that there it's just like a celebration of really the range of what you know popular music can really represent for us right um and i i love that you know, kind of dynamic range. 
Um, and it, it got me thinking about, you know, passion and, and how we share our passion and, and whether or not passion for art is something that can be cultivated. I'm, I know passion can be cultivated personally, yeah. but can passion be taught? You know, can you, can you teach someone how to cultivate that same passion about art or, uh, you know, a, a particular project? That is an excellent question. And I'm not sure it can be, uh, uh, because Lord knows I've tried. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my main test subject being my little sister, uh, you know, when I would just, you know, I'm two years older than her, so I got a driver's license first. So I had the car, which meant I was in charge of the stereo. And I would try every day to get her to listen to stuff. <laughs> and she's definitely got a more eclectic taste than she would have had otherwise. But what I realized was, oh, her passion lies elsewhere. She still has passion. It's just not passion for what I have. Right. It's the same thing with, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of sports fans who are like serious sports fans that go so deep and like you want to talk about nerdy, like these guys like <laughs> yeah, and girls, like everybody, like they they get like they can name every single player, every single stat, every single year. Yeah. They can name you, you know, they can go back to World Series game of 1964 down to not just the inning but the play. Yeah. And it's like, I don't go that deep. I love sports, but from a, you know, a passive level, I'm not an active sports watcher. And um, yeah, it, that's, that's kind of, and so I think passion is inherent. I think where the trip up happens is when we, when we teach or when we try to teach passion, we have our own agenda. We're trying to say, mm. I love this thing. I want you to love this thing too, as much as I love it. And if the person is receptive, awesome. And if they're not, it's not because they can't be taught this passion. It's just that their passion has a different sweater on. Sure. And it's um, it can be it can be tough because when we do feel so passionate about a book or a painting or a piece uh, you know a piece of music or a movie, we so badly want people to see what we see. Mm. But we've seen the folly in that a little bit with movie adaptations, uh, like literary adaptations. Oh yeah. And I, I, so I've worked in Hollywood for 15 years, so I go very easy on movie adaptations mm -hmm. because for me, it's like, look, I know what I see in my head when I read a book. Right. I know the movie that plays in my head. How cool is it that you get to see what someone else sees or a group of people see rather when they read a book? Yeah. Now, it may not mesh with what you saw, but how cool is it that you get to see a visual representation of someone else's head movie? that they saw when they read a book. Yeah. And so I, yeah, like I, I tend to go a lot easier on movie adaptations also because it's really hard because they are such different mediums and people will say like, Oh, this book is so cinematic and you go, it is until it, it needs to be uh, adapted. And then you realize how uncinematic it actually was. Um, you know, I think Terrence Malick's the only person that will do that much internal dialogue as an, like a voiceover. <laughs> and um yeah, it's it's a tough medium. And so that's where the, the, the passion tends to get not dangerous, but just a little touchy. Just, you know, like I, I try to always like rein my passion in. Remember that it's my passion, not someone else. <laughs> and that's kind of what's so great about being a writer is I can just kind of put that out there mm. in a very kind of, uh, uh, you know, incognito way and be like look if you like it cool if not you can shut the book and never open it again that's totally fine <laughs> right i'm not i'm not trying to push anything on you here yeah it's it's kind of the um what what was that that baseball movie uh the the you know build it and they will come right oh field of dreams yeah field of dreams yeah thank you 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like there's very much, at least when it comes to, you know, creating art and, and with regards to writing, um, it, it's, it's like, do it, you know, do it. And then your, your audience is going to find you, you know, they're right. like, they're going to be looking for it. They will find it. Right. So, so write it, you know, do the thing, uh, have your passion, share your passion, because there are going to be other, there's 7 billion people on this planet, you know, yeah. like odds are at least one of them is going to be into this stuff too. I, and if, and if they don't, then you deserve a genius grant because you found the one thing that nobody <laughs> likes, right? which is amazing. Like that should be an art installation. That's hilarious. Um, <laughs> so shifting gears just a little bit, bit to, yeah. you know, talk away from from art and and passion. Um, I I kind of wanted to circle in on some of the other stuff that this book does, which is you know kind of an exploration of grief. It's a book yeah. about you know death and opening portals to the dead, but it's also a book about understanding our own relationships and how we cope with various kinds of loss right so you know what were some of the things on your mind as you were constructing these you know troubled relationships and and constructing the characters that have to deal with you know loss and then you know the loss of loss in a way you know like an inability to really effectively cope with um the the things that they lose Oh, man, that's another really good question. Uh, so I, I not to bring everything down, but I, I lost my father when I was 16. And um, I did not have a relationship like Charlie had with Raymond in the book. I actually had a really great relationship with my dad. Um, but I was 16. And when you're 16 and, you know, you grow up in the Pacific Northwest during the grunge era and you've come out of that era, you tend to be <laughs> a little bit of a hellraiser. And um, so I I realized back then, like, oh, how grief affected my mom and my sister was so different to how it affected me. And grief really tailors itself to the person and specifically about the relationship you had with the person that you lost. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to explore what would happen to a, like because when grief happens, anybody that's lost somebody knows this mm-hmm. grief rips through a family. It, it And it just it brings out the best of us. It brings out the worst of us. And it really is all dependent on your relationship with the person that you lost. And so Charlie, his twin sister, Ellie, his older sister, Susan, even though Ellie and Charlie are twins, they had very different relationships with their father, Susan, even more so because she was so much older than them. And each of their grief manifests itself differently. And of course, in that comes conflict. Um, One of those scenes, uh, not to give too much away is in the, um, uh, the funeral home. In just the way they handle each of the characters handling the cremation. Yeah. You know, uh, Charlie is sort of dealing with it very matter of factly, like it's just something that needs to be done. Susan is trying to push it through as quickly as possible because she needs to get back to work. She needs to get right. make that money. And Ellie, you know, she's she's like, we're burning dad, you know, and like Susan's trying to get moved up the line to get him cremated over people that were here first that need to be cremated. And Charlie, yeah. like Charlie's off doing God knows what thinking about these records. And um, I wanted to explore, you know, grief. When we talk about, you know, the stages of grief, the the last one is always acceptance. Mm. I think that there's been a little bit of um, a mistranslation of that over the years uh, for people when they think about grief for themselves. When they think of acceptance, they might think that, oh, 
you know, like wiping their hands together, like they just clean the sink, like, okay, grief's done. I can move on now. Right. And no, it's like, it just, no, acceptance means you've accepted it. It's, it is now a scar on your psyche. It's there. It, you don't have to think about it all the time. You won't yeah. think about it all the time, but in the quiet moments, you're going to remember the scar. You're going to look at the scar and you're going to go, oh yeah, there's that thing. You know, my dad has been dead for 22 years. I still think about him all the time, but the sadness is dulled. Um, you know, do I wish he could have read this book? Absolutely. Because he was the first voracious reader that I ever knew. My mom was a heavy reader too, but my dad would just like, just go through stacks of books. Just crazy. Like he just, you know, he tossed me like a Peter Benchley. That was like, he loved Peter Benchley. <laughs> like he'd just like, here's Beast, here's Jaws, here's Q Clearance, where I'm like, this one's kind of boring. But um, uh, I want, yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, grief. And then you have the grief of uh, the two record store employees. Yeah. Their grief has tailored itself to them very differently as well. Um, you know, Anna, who was who lost her own father when she was a child, was now given a second father, and the second father was taken away from her. And now here's this guy who is the actual son of Raymond who's coming back to town and he might close the record store. Well, and why would he close the record? He doesn't know anything about the store and like, you know, and he hates Raymond. How could anybody hate Raymond? And that's another thing I wanted to talk about too, which is <laughs> When it comes to conflict, whether mm. it's very negative and, and just kind of icky conflict like abuse or something like that or gaslighting, yeah. and you hear about these stories and you go, well, I worked with so-and-so. Like, I, they seem like a great person. Yeah. It's like, well, you, don't, you weren't there at home. You didn't know the person in your own personal life. You weren't there for the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. You weren't there to see him take his pants off at the end of the day and brush his teeth. And, you know, Anna had this very, uh, you know... um, almost sort of perfect view of who Raymond was and yeah. didn't know any of the bad stuff. And, and it's understandable why she didn't want to look at the bad stuff because she needed, she needed Raymond in her life. And it's very easy for us, you know, for us to blind ourselves to those imperfections, especially if we're in a romantic relationship at the beginning, mm -hmm. all those little like picadillos, like we think are charming in six months would be like, they're driving me insane. Um, <laughs> we, we do that as like self-preservation and with friendships, we can make it last much longer than we can in romantic relationships because romantic relationships, it's so much more intimate. We're there with them every day. That facade can drop very quickly, but with a work colleague, even if it's someone who's very close, you only see them on the same bit of carpet or tile for six to eight hours a day. Right. And even then it's, we all kind of put that mask on when we go to work. It's only when we get home that we let it drop. And that's what charlie's kids see but even then the kids all saw a different kind of mask drop yeah so that's kind of what i wanted to talk about it's um it's really beautifully complex and and multi-dimensional i mean it, it was you know again talking about the tender moments that really surprised me about this book um because it swings big with its horror um and yet it it knows to center itself back on the conflicts that these characters have and the the multiple dimensions that a relationship you know kind of has and processing grief is different for people you know depending on on the situation they're in that the, the yeah. relationship that they had and it's a messy process it is not a linear process it is not no. you know anything that just kind of happens all at once um and this book i think reflects on that really well um and 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 kind of uses horror at, you know to to kind of create this metaphor for understanding our own you know cycles of relationships and grief and our love of art you know it's 
right man hats off like this book is so great Dude, you're so kind this is like so generous for you to say thank you i like i don't like i'm like flummoxed i don't know what to say <laughs> i'm just like i just wrote this dopey book about spooky records man i don't know <laughs> i'm 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 the person who's like i'm just this is my passion right like you know some yeah. people have music some people have sports uh this is this is it for me like literature is everything it's it's yeah you know what's funny me. it is for me too Everybody's been just like, man, you must be a music. And I'm like, I stopped like collecting records 15 years ago. Like I had to choose one medium. Right. And it, and right. it, it is books. And like you, there's this wall, there's all this wall, there's books all up here, there's books yeah. all over there. And that's just the bedroom. And then there's downstairs and there's just thousands and thousands of books. And um, it's, yeah, it's really funny. Like I, I, like I do really love music, but I mean, I like books so much more. Oh, <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I love that. I mean, I we're multidimensional people too, you know. Absolutely. Um, For me, it was um, it was horror when I was a kid, like ho- yeah. horror novels specifically. I remember I read The Shining way too young. Um, <laughs> it's like nine or ten, I think. And because um, uh, you know Stephen King, back in that era, like I you know I was born in eighty five, and so growing up in like the late eighties, early nineties, it's, he was just ubiquitous. He was everywhere. Like yeah. you couldn't go to any corner quarter market without seeing one of those wire spindle racks full oh, of those signet yeah. paperbacks. And so I remember just using my allowance to buy those paperbacks. And my mom was like, are you reading those? And I was like, no, I just love the covers. I love the art <laughs> of it. And I, I've always been a movie poster fanatic, a book cover fanatic, an album cover fanatic. Um, I think that's some of the best art in the world. And those Stephen King Viking books, I mean, just title treatment for his name alone is just some of the best work ever done. And um, and I remember getting The Shining and the, I had the, the version of The Shining. I had the signet paperback that was like the reflective silver one, uh, which is like the silhouette of the face on the front. And I remember reading it and I got and I'd seen the movie by that point and I was kind of waiting for the hedge maze. And I was like, where's the hedge maze? And then it got to the topier and I was like, this is going to be stupid. And then the 20 pages later, I'm like, that's the scariest fucking thing I've ever read in my life. That was, it almost caused me to stop reading. Um, Yeah. You know, again, I, I, uh, this was only like a decade ago, you know? So, so I was kind of in my twenties and I, I had not developed a sense for what, you know, kind of the language of horror. Sure. Um, and it it scared the pants out of me. Like I like I almost had to put the book away and and like only read it in the daytime until I, yeah. I like developed a real sense for for understanding what it was doing and what it was making me feel. Right. Um and 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 you know, I don't think that there's any experience quite like that that I've had since, you know, like really it, just it, getting it is, under your skin. It's hard to recapture it. It's like um, it's like Saturday Night Live in a weird way. I'll, I'll believe you. I'm going to walk all the way around the park, but I'll make this make sense. <laughs> but when you uh, when you're a kid, the the cast of SNL that you see will always be in your mind the best cast because that's when you're learning what comedy is and what comedy can be. Same way that I will always think the kids in the hall are the funniest fucking. People oh yeah. <laughs> Use my language. I'm sorry. I don't know if we can swear or not. Oh yeah, uh, no, go for it. Um, and uh, but it's it's sort of like it's your first scare. The, the moment you like my sister, she still can't watch The Shining, the Kubrick version, because of those Grady girls. Yeah, like she you... just can't handle the, the 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 visual of it. And I was like, no, I, I I get it. For the longest time, I remember again being way too young and seeing on TV the It miniseries, 
and <laughs> it wasn't the clown necessarily. Um, it was the scene in the bathroom when Eddie Kasprak is in the shower and all the nozzles come out and they do that stop motion bit with the tile. There was something yeah. so surreal and otherworldly about that. Just that visual of like the stop motion tile going and like he comes out of it. I was like, I can never step foot in a bathroom again. Right. I can never look at a drain again. <laughs> and like, especially white tiles, white tiles scared the hell out of me for a year. And it's like, wh what a strange thing to be scared of. But that those, yeah, those first scares, it's like a first kiss. It's that thing that you, it will always be huge in your mind. Yeah. And then I remember reading the, the book, the book it, and I've since read it like 10 times, one of my favorite books of all time. And, um, but every single time, like the book, I never honestly found that scary because I didn't grow up in the fifties. So like the wolf man and like, you know, that wasn't scary to me. Right. Um, I grew like, you know, I grew up in like the eighties and nineties, like Hellraiser, like the Cenobites were scary yeah. to me. Like no offense, Lon Chaney Jr. But like, you know, Doug Bradley scared the hell out of me. Oh yeah. Uh, but what really got under my skin and I think probably a lot of people would agree is the, the scene with Patrick Hockstetter with the dog. And that's all I'll talk. I won't go into it. <laughs> if you have never heard of it, you can look it up. I'm warning you right now. If you have a thing about animal cruelty, which I certainly do, like I can't stomach it. I don't like, I can't, I've seen jaws 10,000 times. I have to fast forward over the scene with the floating piece of driftwood because the dog is missing. I can't, <laughs> I, I mentioned it in the book too. Never ending story. When Artax sinks in the oh, swamps God. of sadness, I have to fast forward. Why you got to open that? 38 room, years man. old and I can't watch it. Like, it's just too heartbreaking. Too yeah, heartbreaking. Uh, that, that, that movie still fucks me up. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in a great way. Yeah. It's, it is a masterpiece, that movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's oh. funny. I was talking to Kat Silva about that, that very yeah. movie. Because um, she was kind of sharing like, you know, so few people, I think, have have really watched it from you know like a younger generation yeah. um and it, it's it's coming to be one of those like cult classics <laughs> like you know uh, which i i love to hear i think i i know it really resonates with readers and writers because we were all bastion uh, yes he was us when we were kids like yeah. i watched that movie and i know other readers and writers feel the same way like you go yeah that was me i was yeah. the kid that would have skipped school to go read a book yeah. You know, I would have hid in the attic to read it, but that was the most important thing. Yeah. And, it's also, uh, it was amazing. That's, uh, and then there's Never Ending Story Part Two. Oof. <laughs> that's, that's, and then Part Three with, uh, with TV's with, Jack Black. Jack Black. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, um, as we kind of wrap up here, um, what is on the horizon for you and where can people find more information about your work online? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I have a Twitter account, uh, or X, I guess. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, I, I have a Twitter account. I'm not that active. I kind of just copy and paste things over on there. Instagram is kind of where I'm mostly at cause it's such a visual medium and, and I really like making, uh, like art and ads and stuff. For oh the my book gosh, and... those ads. We got to pause for a second and talk <laughs> about those ads. So it is that that's all you. That's not Nightfire's art department or anything. Yeah, that's me. I um I for the past fifteen years, I've been a creative director at a marketing agency. Uh, I sounded drunk when I said that a marketing agency, and <laughs> uh, we've been working on uh, we do movies and TV shows and stuff like that. We've done one sheets and we've done all kinds of stuff. And I started as a graphic designer and worked my way up, and I've spent fifteen years working on other people's campaigns, other people's dreams, mm -hmm. and um. 
It's been really fun. It's been really fulfilling in a lot of different ways. But this is the first time where I was like, I get to do my own campaign. And the best part is there are no notes from the client because I'm the client. <laughs> and so like when I'm like, and I'm looking at Photoshop and I'm like, that's done. I'm like, great. And I post it. <laughs> like, it's just, there it is. Um, I, I absolutely love them. There's, there's just something in, in the visual style that you put into those ads that rings a bell. Cause again, you know, going back to my love for comic books, right? Sure. I've read so many freaking seventies and eighties era comic books. Yep. So I see these ads and I'm like, did I just travel through time? Like <laughs> it is a visceral reaction. I see it. And I'm like, this is so good. <laughs> oh, thank you, man. Well, I, it's, I feel the same way. Like what, not about my own work. That's Jesus. That's pretentious. But no, I feel about <laughs> that way about seeing seventies and eighties ads. I have yeah. books of them of just yes. advertisements from that era from the fifties through the eighties. I just love that era of advertising and uh, sp specifically print advertising there's just something so beautiful about it. And I think anybody that was born in the, like, you know, at the latest, the eighties or nineties, cause we grew up still reading magazines and comic books that had that style of ad. And there are some companies that just ran, ran the same ad for 20 years. And so we saw these, you know, there was like eight different fonts that they kind of used. There's like eight different kind of layouts. There's very specific layout to do it. And it just always hits me right in my heart. I just go, yeah. that's my childhood. And, uh, you know, I, I said it before, I'll say it again. Like my favorite writer of all time is Ray Bradbury and nobody capitalizes on nostalgia better than him. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I remember reading one time, he just goes, if anybody tells you that nostalgia is a bad word, he goes, just turn the other way. Because that's what, that's how we keep our humanity. That's, you know, those are our formative years before we become jaded and before, you know, our fears go from the monster under the bed to the taxes that are due. Yeah, that's that's who we were. And so making these ads like it's been really fun because I'm just like, yeah, because th this is the kind of stuff that I would want to see. Yeah, this is the stuff I, you know, I don't um, I don't know how contemporary this novel is. I know there's a cell phone in it, but <laughs> the rest of it is like I'm not a very I don't think I'm a very modern writer. I'm kind of a traditionalist, I guess, when it comes mm. to my style. Um, And so. Yeah, I, I wanted the sort of the advertising to to match that and say, like, look, this is this is who I am. I think it does. I, I mean, it really, it, it felt, I don't want to say timeless because I, I do think that that that's not the correct word, but <laughs> it's very specific. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but it feels, um, I don't know. There, there's like an authenticity to it. There's, there's a style that you evoke through this book that I think does speak to a, a very singular kind of experience that you that you you know you have interacting with media i really did feel like i'm i'm reading a book that feels like it was ripped out of the 80s and just that's like awesome. flopped in front of me that's um, again, now that's the best compliment you could have given me <laughs> that is that is my that is where my heart lives um i you know yeah king and barker ramsey campbell uh bentley little like that yeah, that was that was everything to me when I was a kid. Um, yeah, well, let me tell you, it's it's note perfect. I mean, like it really <laughs> just you. is. Man, it's such a good book, listener. If if you're out there wondering, should I pick up this Schrader's Chord? Yes, you should pick <laughs> it up. It's out September fifth. It's it really is just so great. I'm gonna get rid of all humility and say I agree with you. You should pick it up. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. All right. So um, just, you know, again, real quick, um, where can 
so so people can find you on Instagram. They can yeah. kind of maybe find you on Twitter. Yeah, um, there ish. Yeah, and and what's the next project down the line? Um, so without giving too much away. Uh, at this moment, now keep in mind anything could change. Um, because I my brain is a is a fickle beast. Um, <laughs> and I, there are so many different things that I want to write about. Uh, but another thing that I love is animation from the 1930s. Oh, and God, yes. uh, the era of Tex Avery and of Max Man, Fleischer of talking, iWorks. You were speaking <laughs> my language. So the next book, as it stands right now, um, I've written the hundred page synopsis because I am fastidious. And diligent um because i need i don't outline because outline is like that's that's not that's too vague i need to get really into it and i write a very very long synopsis which my poor editors they're like it's 100 pages really uh i did cut it down to like 60 for my editors but um yeah it takes place in uh, 1930s hollywood and during the the animation boom and um i will say if you read or if you have read cold heart canyon by clive barker and Death is a Lonely Business by Ray Bradbury. Those are my two biggest influences, along with a smidge of The Rocketeer and a little bit of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Because another one of my big loves is aviation. And um, I don't know if you can actually see it here behind me, Trevor, but there is the Bulldog Cafe. Oh, man. I f- Oh, gosh. My brain is... The Rocketeer is literally, like, my top three movie of all time. Like... So in my bathroom, I have the Hughes, uh, the the Hughes, the, the the Hughes Industries poster with oh, the the three uh, Rocketeers on I there. I love it. Oh my gosh, yeah. I love it. Whole goblets of my imagination were just like consumed by Rocketeers. Well, then you are gonna like whole sections of this book because there is an airfield, <laughs> there is a stunt pilot, uh, who is the the, the, the you know okay, I'm, I there's so much I want to tell you about it, but I can't. Um, <laughs> There is, but it does, it takes, it's 1930s Hollywood. It's that art deco era. Um, and yes. uh, it is about, uh, it's about, I, you know, in Trader's Court, I tackled music and this next one, I tackle early animation. I'm, I'm for it, man. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> I'm so for it. Well, um, God, thank you so much for your time today, Scott. This has Dude. been just such a lovely conversation um, and a lovely book. Uh, can't wait for people to read it September 5th. After you read Holly. 